About six weeks ago, we had two couples over to our house for some dinner. Um, uh, two of them were, uh, were actually Daryl and Evie, and then uh, uh, another couple, uh, Van and, and his wife Joyce. And it was uh, it was a great time to uh, to be together. We were sitting outside, and we set up. My wife set up. She's such a a great decorator, and and kind of creates those wonderful atmospheres for me. Every morning, she uh, wakes up uh, before dawn and prepares the house for me and a nice meal and candles and all those things. Well, maybe not every week. But um, but anyway, that night she actually did. And we had a candle there with a candelabra in a, in a bottle. And it was, I don't know, six or eight candles in it of some kind, some nature of candle. I don't know what it was. But about halfway through the meal, I, I looked down and I realized the effects of these candles. Not only had they made a beautiful kind of a picture over that bottle, but they had uh, sprinkled the plates and the glasses and the table and the tablecloth, and everybody was just really waxed down really well. And, uh, and, I, and I, it, the, the effect on the bottle is beautiful now, but the effect on everything else was not good. And then as I began to think about it, I thought, what caused that? And I thought, well, we don't want to get those candles again, or, or was it the wind, or what was it? And I realized that indeed it was the wind. And the wind had an effect on those candles, on that light. Jesus said that you hear the sound of the wind, but you don't see it. So it is with the Spirit of God. You can see the effect of the Spirit of God on someone. He leaves his wax, so to be, if you will. He leaves a mark on you that you have been in the presence of the Spirit of God. What God wants to do is he wants to fill you, fill me, fill us in such a way that we are living, breathing temple of God himself. That everywhere we go, people say, there's something on you. Just say that with me. There's something on me. Ready? There's something on me. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God. We're going to try it again. This is like uh, elementary kind of recite the big phrase. Ready? The first line is, there's something on me. Ready? There's something on me. The Spirit of God. Begin to say that, walk in the Spirit, the Bible says, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. I don't know if you've heard this before. I know you haven't heard it in a couple of weeks, but it goes like this. You can be in the middle of a miracle and not know it. This morning I got up, it was a little cool, I put this sweater on, realized I haven't worn this sweater since February 19th, nine months ago when we had our meeting uh, in Savvy Ranch launching this church. And it brought back some great memories. I thought, look how far we've come in nine months. I'm going to tell you some details as we go in this message, but it really is a miracle of what God has done. God has brought people together. God has saved people. We've baptized people. We've had everything we've done is a first. And I was thinking about, about the people who were there on that February 19th meeting or the one prior to that, the February 12th, all you've seen and all you've experienced in nine months. I really didn't have a clue where we were going to be. I mean, we really had no place to meet. We had no money. We had no people. We had nothing. We just had a dream. And God is birthing that dream 
in multiplied fashion over and over again. Here's the second thing I want you to understand. You are the most influential person in the world. When I say that to people, they say, no, you don't understand. I say, no, because nobody has the gifts and the talent and the ability and the opportunity that you have. We're often asked, why did you name a church influence? It is because of Jesus. It is our influence for his fame. Whatever influence you have to talk to people, to share, to make a difference in the world, it always goes back to the glory of God. It's not about us, it's about him. It's about us walking before him in, in, in truth and righteousness and holiness so that God blesses in a great way. Sometimes it's a bit shocking. I was a, when I was a kid, I, uh, I had a little alarm clock, one of those ones that sits by your bed, it was, and I loved it because it would light up at night and I could see what time, and that light went out. So I decided as about a nine-year-old, I was going to fix the electric light. I don't recommend this at home. I took it apart. I began to put it all together, and I wanted to make sure the light worked, so I turned the, the light out of my bedroom, and I went to plug this thing in. When I plugged it in, I don't know what I did, but it arced, and it shot a flame back on me. My whole hand was black all the way up. It burned all the hair off my arm, and I had met the power. When you, when you meet the power of God in your life, you influence the world for Jesus Christ. The other thing is, you can change the world. Don't ever believe that you can't change the world. It's maybe one life at a time, but you can change the world. I found this quote. It was written by a guy in the 1800s, which made it even more valuable to me when I read it, a Scottish preacher, a Presbyterian preacher. He said, I simply say the cross must be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm not claiming that Jesus was not crucified. Uh, I'm claiming that Jesus was not crucified in the cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. Now think about that. Where he chose to die was not in eloquence. It was not in beauty. It was not in all, all the, the perfect places we would imagine God would sacrifice himself but on a cross between two thieves on the town garbage heap at a crossroad so cosmopolitan that they had to write the title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. At the kind of place where cynics talk smut, where thieves curse and soldiers gamble. Because that is where he died, and that is what he died about, and that is where churchmen ought to be about and what churchmen ought to be about. We forget the cross in that day, is the equivalent today of the electric chair. It was the most despised foreign object you could imagine. No one would encounter that unless they really had a heart to. No one would want to see that unless somehow there was something in their heart that cried out for, for punishment. That's where Jesus died. Jesus died for your sins, the things you thought about this week and the things you did this week that you knew weren't in alignment with God. That's why he died, and he loves you all the more because his grace is sufficient for you and for me and everything we do. We come to this story and this portion in Exodus chapter 25 where we're talking about the lampstand. That candle, that candelabra, if you will, that burned in the Holy of Holies 
before the Ark of the Covenant and the table of the showbread. It's one of those obscure passages you don't ever read unless you just are reading through the Bible. Or somebody's crazy enough to spend the next 40 years preaching through the book of Exodus. Listen to what it says. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. It's interesting, the dimensions of it are not given. It is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ whom you cannot measure. He is immeasurable in all his ways. It was a pure gold. And this pure gold lampstand, it says, shall be hammered work. It wasn't poured into a mold so it could be reproduced over and over again. It was a one of a kind, just as Jesus is one of a kind. And they would take a massive piece of gold and they would begin to beat this into the right place, into the way it should look. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs, and the flowers shall be of one piece. Not one thing was added. You can't add anything to Jesus, and you can't take anything away. He is pure God. He is fully God and fully man. He died on a cross for you and for me. And it was the pureness, uh, the purity of who he was that allowed us to receive the forgiveness of sins. Six branches shall come out on each side. That seventh one in the center. And the lampstand on the other side. Three bowls shall be made like almond blossoms on one branch with ornamental knob and a flower. And three bowls like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornamental knob and to the flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. If all you get is this, that this is a picture of Jesus who lights this place called the Holy of Holies. And guess where the Holy of Holies is? It's in your heart. Your heart is the Holy of Holies of God. That's where God dwells. You are the temple of the living God. You were not bought. You were bought with a price. The price, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to see something about this lampstand, its location. It was in the presence of God. You realize when that priest went into that Holy of Holies, there was no light. There was no window. There was nothing that was penetrating the darkness of that room. No natural light in the holies of holies. In his presence, there is no room for the natural light. That's why it says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 23 that when we meet him, there will be no need for the sun or the moon or the stars, for the glory of God will be our light, and we shall reign with him as kings forever and ever. You see, as we begin to understand, the more that we walk in our light, that is our understanding and our wisdom, the less we will be able to see His light. The psalmist said, in thy light do we see light. If you've ever been reading the Bible and you, you don't know what you're reading and you don't really understand it, and all of a sudden it's like the Spirit of God speaks to you and you go, oh, now I get it. Now I see it. That's His light revealing light to you and understanding and spiritual understanding. But guess what Satan does? Satan comes, the Bible says, to kill and to destroy and to lie to you. He gives you more confidence in your ability so that you won't rely on God's ability. The quicker you get bankrupt with who you are, the faster you can find God. That's why Paul said, in, in this weakness I find you. May I glory in my weakness that the power of God may be evident in me. He wants to steal from you the revelation of God. That is, when you read the Word of God, God speaks and you say, God just spoke to me. And you know it's different. 
It's different than when you just read the Bible and you're reading along and go, that's nice and that's really applicable. And it, you know the difference when you read it and go, wow, I think God just got my attention. And he'll do it just like that, just like the wind that blows those candles, just like the wind that comes in into our life by the Spirit of God. He'll blow into your life. He'll speak to you. He'll give you a revelation, but Satan wants to come and steal that revelation from you. He'll kill the faith that God has put in you. When you start to rise up and say, I believe God can do this, and the enemy will come, and he will just be there just for a second, and all of a sudden you'll say, but you don't really believe that, do you? Or that works in other people's life, but not in your life. That's the enemy stealing that. That's not God, and that's not you. That's the enemy trying to rob and steal and destroy that which God wants to do inside of you. What would happen if just this crowd, this church, influence crowd, what would happen if they lived by the revelation of God, walked in the fullness of the Spirit of God? We would be an unstoppable force. What if the church worldwide would do that? Imagine. God, uh, we also understand that the enemy wants to destroy the future that God has prepared for you. God has good things for you, not bad things, not evil things. God wants to bless you. The Bible says in 2 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 9 that the eyes of the Lord move to and fro across the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely what if your heart was completely his right now? What if right now, just hearing that, the Spirit of God said to you, give me your heart, and you did? What if right now you just said, I want to walk in the fullness of your presence? You will. Because that's the way God works in our life. The enemy comes, he wants to steal light, and what he wants to give you in its place is darkness. Jesus, when he was speaking to the disciples in Matthew chapter 6, he said this, if that light that be within you becomes darkness, how great is the darkness indeed. You see, what you have to understand, the, 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 the darkness that comes in is the lack of revelation of God. It doesn't mean you cease to be a believer. It means you no longer hear and see and touch God and you lose the revelation of God. You lose what it means to be a supernatural being. That's what you are. The Spirit of God is living in you. You are created for eternity. You are created not for time but for eternity. And when the Spirit of God comes inside of you in that way, it makes all the difference in the world. When you begin to study the lampstand, it's an interesting kind of a study. <coughs> because when you find, uh, as you study it, you find it shows up in unusual places like 1 Samuel chapter 3 and verse 1. The story here, it says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. You know what that means? People weren't reading, studying the word of God. It was rare. You didn't hear people say, thus saith the word of God. You didn't see people opening up their Bible and reading the word of God. It was rare in those days. And notice what was attached to that. And there was no widespread revelation. You see, when you're out of the word of God, you're not going to hear from God. You're not going to see God. God's not going to be speaking the way he needs to speak. You have to be in the word of God to, to get from the word of God. And it came to pass at that time that this this old priest named Eli was lying in his place when his eyes had began to grow so dim that he could not see. And then notice it's almost parenthetical how the Spirit of God puts this in. It says, and before the lamp of God went out in the tabernacle of the Lord where the ark was. It's telling you here something's going on. That the, the light is burning dim the light is burning dim in the tabernacle. It's getting ready to go out, and it was coming in a day of darkness when people neglected the Word of God, and revelation wasn't a part of their daily living. 
Do you want the revelation of God to be powerful in your life? Stay in the Word of God. Stay close to God. Let the, the, the light burn bright. You know, one of the jobs of the priest was to go in there and, and take the wick, and he would trim the wick on, that, on those candles so that they would burn bright. Because if you didn't, they would clod up, and that oil would not flow. You see, sometimes we have to trim the wick in our life. Sometimes we have to cut some stuff out of our life that's not right, that's not good, because we don't have the Spirit of God flowing powerfully like we want Him to flow in our life. So we understand from this passage the Word of God was rare. There was no widespread revelation, and the lamp was about to go out. It's an interesting parallel when we look then to Revelation chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Jesus, it says, walks among the seven golden candlesticks of His church. Here is now the lampstand in the book of Revelation. Still, it has not left us. It is not an Old Testament thing. It is a God thing. We have to understand, well, you know, that was the biblical days. You don't understand. We are living in biblical days. The days we are living in are biblical. God is working in our day according to the word of God. But listen to what it says in Revelation. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have lost or left your first love. You have left. Your first love. You remember your first love? I was going through some old pictures. We decorated our house for Christmas. It looks great. And by the way, we decided for Christmas Eve, we're going to give you more details, we're not going to have a Christmas Eve service. Instead, we're going to have you all to our house. I know it's a gutsy move, <laughs> but we're going to give it a shot. We've hired a, a jazz saxophone player to come and play Christmas music. We're going to have you come in, we're just going to love on you, we're going to be close to you, and we're going to produce a DVD message on Christmas for you that you can hand out to people, and we'll put it on Vimeo, and we'll, we'll, we'll reach more people that way. This will probably be the only year we'll be able to do it. But we just want you to know we love you, and we want to be close to you as our family. And as we begin to understand something about this, he says, you lost your first love. Well, I was going through some old pictures. And I was born in Denver shortly thereafter. My dad was in the military, and we moved to Georgia. And I was probably about two years old in Georgia, and we left there in six, uh, when I was six years old because he moved a lot as a military man. But I came across a picture of my first girlfriend. And not only was she my girlfriend holding her hand, but I was kissing her. Oh, my goodness. I wanted a bicycle so bad when I was little. You know why? So I could ride down the end of the street and show off to my little girlfriend. You say, good grief, you're only six. I know, but it was real. <laughs> you remember your first love? And God calls us back in this passage because we can all relate to a first love. He says, you remember your first love, Jesus? Remember when you loved Jesus with all your heart and there was nothing, there was nothing you wouldn't do for him? When you read the word of God, it became alive to you? When you prayed, it, it, you just felt like you were touching heaven? And he said to this church, you've lost your first love. He says to us individuals, as we begin to lose our first love, look what he says, remember therefore where you have fallen. Repent. You see the message? Turn from that and turn back to your first love. And do the first works. And he says to this whole church, unless I come and I remove the lampstand from its place, unless you repent. 
You see what Jesus says, I can take the light out of a whole church, just like I can take the light out of an individual. I think when the church fails to exalt Jesus above all things, it's risk, it risks losing its light. When a church is more about performance than about the Word of God, it risks losing its own light. When the church is, is more concerned about programs than revival, it risks losing its light. When comfort is chosen over God's presence, it loses its light. I don't want to lose the light of God in my life. I want to encourage the light. I want, to, I, want to, I want the oil of God to begin continue to flow through us in a powerful way. G. Campbell Morgan said, you, you can't program the Spirit of God, but what you can do is set your sails so when the wind begins to blow, you will feel the effect of the wind. When you set your, your sails, so to speak, for God, you're saying, God, blow in my direction. I'm, put, I'm putting up the mass. I'm saying here, I'm in the Word of God. I'm relying on the revelation of God. I'm trimming back the wicks. I'm doing everything I know to allow the Spirit of God to come in my life. Secondly, I want you to see the power of God in the fullness of the Spirit of God. Let me take you to the book of Zechariah. We've got all the passages on the screen if you want to watch. But listen to what it says. He has this vision of this golden lampstand. Here it is again. It keeps reoccurring in Scripture. Zechariah chapter 4 and verse 6, in the middle of this lampstand vision he sees, he sees two olive trees and this lampstand that's giving light to these olive trees. And he says, do you understand what you're seeing? And he says, I don't understand what I'm seeing, God. And this is what God says. This is his answer. We've quoted the scripture not realizing it was in the context of the lampstand of God. He says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, when the lamp is burning bright, you'll understand this truth. Then verse 7, God says, Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. So now all of a sudden, the miraculous begins to enter in. Do you see that? All of a sudden, you begin to operate in this principle of it's not by might or not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Then you can look at the mountain that's in front of you and it will become a plain. Zerubbabel, it can become a plain. You are facing mountains. I face mountains. All of us face mountains. God's promise to Zerubbabel is very similar to the promise that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 20. They brought to him a, him a boy that was demon-possessed. They couldn't cast the demons out of the boy. And he said, how long will I have to deal with this faithless generation? The reason the boy has the demons is by lack of faith, he said. And then he said these words that Jesus said, because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say unto you, if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. I like those words, but they scare me to death. Sometimes I worry, well, what if I say that and God doesn't come through? Well, it's his reputation, not mine. I didn't write it. You ever stop to think about that? People say, well, how do you know you're saved? Because God said, well, what if it doesn't? Well, then it's his problem. I'm just a, I'm just a servant of God following God, and God says, do it. I'm going to do it. I mean, isn't that what Noah did? He, he risked his reputation to look foolish when God said, build an ark, and he built an ark. And, and everybody says, you're a fool, Noah, you're a fool, until the rains came. And then they were saying, you know, we'd like reservations. And there were none to be had. 
Then go on, Zechariah, back to chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It says, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. You see, God says, I'm going to use you to do something great. I'm going to do you to, to do the miraculous. Then Zechariah chapter 10 and verse A, uh, letter A there, do not despise the day of small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin. You know, sometimes you look at something in your life and you go, I don't have much here. What do I really have going for me? What is God really doing? And it looks so small and so insignificant on the great scheme of things. Do not despise those days. God loves to see the work begin. God loves to see a struggle. I would just, you know, I have really forgotten all that we have done in nine months. My mind was kind of spinning around. I was just trying to think what all we've done. And I realized we started out in a really in the living room of, 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 a, of a private residence. We then were in the lobby of, a, of an office building, the second meeting we had, and then we went to El Rancho. And, and I remember when we had this idea, well, maybe we'll do a sunrise service. Somebody said, well, how do you think that'll work? I don't know. We've never had one. Nothing we ever did we had done before. It was all new to us. When we had the baptism. We really didn't know. We had about 20 people scheduled to baptize, and before it was all over, we probably baptized close to 40 people in that one day. I didn't know we, we had that meeting where we had Louis Zapparini came in, and, and we met outside, and it was, uh, it was about 90 degrees or 100 degrees, and everybody was out there just sweating and waiting, but more than 1,700 people showed up. And that was just Father's Day. That was just four months into our ministry. You forget what God is doing. All the equipment we had when we began was rented and borrowed and, and anything we could, and we tried to keep it as long and hope that nobody would remember we still had it. I mean, we had the snake that, that runs all the, the audio stuff. We had that for way too long. We finally felt so guilty we had to buy something from the guy because he'd just been so gracious. We'd still have it if we didn't have a conscience. And now I look, and you don't maybe fully appreciate all that's going on, but, but, you know, God has just blessed us with equipment and all these things. And we began to pray, and we began to say, God, what, what would you have us to do? Where would you have us to be? And we actually have two offers. We have two buildings we have offers on. We have an offer on Mervyn's for $5 million. We're just waiting. I don't know what God's doing. You say, well, what about this other one? Yeah, we have an offer on another building too, on the post office for almost $3 million. We're waiting to see what God does. I can't tell you that I know all the steps that God has. It may be that God wants us to have both those buildings. And I, I don't say that lightly. I just say I'd rather trust God for something big than small. It just takes us just as easy, isn't it? I mean, imagine if you had a boy that just graduated from high school. You went in there and woke him up and said, son, what are you going to do today? It's your first day. You're out of high school. Dad, I'm just going to lay right here. Well, don't you want to get a job? No, I don't need a job. I borrow your car. You give me a little allowance for taking the trash out. Mom cooks me a meal, washes my clothes. and Man, I hang out with my buddies at night. It's just awesome. I love this. 
Now, if you're a father in that household or a single mom, you've probably got some words for that young man. And they're probably not going to be delivered with grace and peace. You see, our Heavenly Father's the same way. He says, well, don't you, you just want to sit back and just kind of wait, let me feed you every once in a while? No, he says, no, I want you to get in the game. I want you to be involved. I want you to sacrifice. I want you to live. I want you to trust me for all these things. So this latest offer that we have, we have, God has put together a pretty amazing plan, and we need you to, to kind of step in. Let me just tell you what we need this week, and I'll explain it to you. We need $300,000 this week. And that's really not much. It's really not much when I tell you where we are. Right now, this offer of about $3 million, we have a private financier who will cover 65% of that. We don't have to walk into a bank anywhere. 700000 of the million remaining has already been either given or pledged by people within our churches secured on their property. Now you think about that. In probably the worst economy we've had since the Great Depression, in a startup church that's nine months old, we have a private financier that's going to put 65% of it up. We have members who've given or committed to give some $700,000 either in a gift or in a loan to our church. I don't know about you, but I think we're in the middle of a miracle. I'm going to tell you some more about that in just a minute. I want, you to, I want to set that early. I want you to start to pray. See what God has for you. See, God loves a cheerful giver. You say, well, I can't do anything. Then don't. Or maybe you're in the middle of a miracle and don't know it. You could say, well, God, let me, let me just pray about it and see what God might do in my life. Let me just see what God might be stirring in my heart. The person in the mission of Jesus Christ. Mark Batterson in his book, The Circle Maker, writes these words. You cannot build God's reputation if you aren't willing to risk yours. You know, I don't have a reputation. Jesus became of no reputation, it says in Philippians 2. Why are we worried about it? We're we worried about what people think. A lot of people don't share their faith with people. I'm worried about what they'll think. What if I don't have the answer? So, tell them you don't have the answer. That's what I do. People say, well, what about that? I go, that's a great idea. I don't know. Let's pray about it. Let's figure it out. Let's get back together. We were away doing a, a wedding renewal for uh, some friends of ours, their 10-year wedding renewal. And while we were there, we encountered a couple that were from India, and they had now moved to Northern California. And as we began to dialogue with them a little bit, and they began to say, well, what do you do? And my, there's something inside of me. I think it must be the enemy. Whenever they, they ask me, what do you do? And I always say, I know if I just drop the pastor word on them, it's all going to go cold here. You know, it's kind of like a witch doctor just showed up, you know, because if you're not a believer, you don't know who this guy is or what he's going to do, you know. And you're thinking, well, he's going to go preach Jesus to me right here, you know. And, and so I'm sitting there going, well, I'm a pastor. And he goes, oh, really? That's interesting. And said, well, tell me about how that happened to you. And then I thought, oh, my gosh. I get to witness to this guy. And he asked me. 
I says, well, you know, I was a pre-law student. I was studying and started reading the Bible, and all of a sudden I realized that everything in the Bible that said not to do, I'd already done two or three times, and, you know, and, and uh, all of a sudden I didn't know how to pray, didn't know anything about it. I began to pray. I began to say, realize that Jesus died for my sins, that he was God, a very God, that he rose from the dead, you know, that he's triumphant now, he forgives me, and, and, they're, and they're just like, and before I left, I have all their contact information. They want more information about this Jesus. What's my reputation worth anyway? There comes a moment when you need to make the call or make the move. If you don't take the risk, you forfeit the miracle. Hey, if I take a risk and on a hundred things and God only works 50 miracles, I'm okay with that. How about you? I guarantee you this, if I take no risk and trust God for nothing, I'm pretty well assured He's not going to perform miracles. See, God is no respecter of persons, but He is a respecter of faith. Do you get that? He is not a respecter of persons, but He is a respecter of faith. That is, He, he looks all of us the same, but it's faith that sets us apart. We need to live our lives in such a way that unless God does a miracle, what we are attempting to do is bound to fail. We need to live our life in such a way that the kingdom of God works in our life in such a powerful way that we understand God's kingdom works differently than the earthly kingdom. It's not the the same. It's different. It's miraculous. The front lines, we get out there on the front lines, you know, that's where all the fiery darts come. And when Satan unleashes his fiery darts, do you realize the front lines with God is the safest place on earth? I remember when I was doing these crusades in El Salvador during that civil war down there, and we would be shot at, tear gas, there would be riots from the FMLN, Communist Party, it was craziness. Craziness. I've seen people laying dead in the streets. People say, I remember my mom used to say, well, you can't go there, it's dangerous. I said, it's safer to be in the will of God in El Salvador during a civil war than to be out of the will of God in suburbia. Amen? You see, the will of God is the key. Courage, faith, and tenacity. You know what those do? They create kingdom warriors who will face any obstacle knowing that God is faithful. Why did God take them all those years in that wilderness? He wanted to create some warriors because he knew he had to breed in them something, something that would allow them, once they got that land back in 1948, they'd be able to hold on to it that somehow they would be able to hold on long enough to make sure the Messiah was born of a virgin who would grow up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and die on a cross for you and for me so Jesus would be lifted up because he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. He needed those kind of people. What is God doing with us? He's trying to build in us tenacity, perseverance, faith, all those things because God has something for us in the days ahead. And we don't know what it looks like. We gathered for that Influence School of Ministry, just, uh, just starting it really with uh, about 15 people, just kind of testing the waters to see how this is looking. I'm looking around the room thinking, God is raising up leaders. We're pouring into people who are going to change the world. Our journey at Influence, we started, as I said, with no money, We had no equipment. We had no place to meet. And nine months later, 
I'm just happy to report today that we have right at $400,000 in the bank. I don't know about you, but that's a miracle. We have been able to save 45% of every dime that comes in. At the same time, we've been able to buy all this equipment. You look around, you go, it just looks like some lights and a camera. You don't realize that that our technology is microwave high-definition video. We're stream When we stream that, it's microwave technology. All these lights are LEDs. All this sound equipment, everything we have is portable. You see these big cases up here? We literally can go on the road anywhere we wanted to go. We knew we had to do that because we're a bunch of gypsies, amen? <laughs> we kind of stay in one place until we we're out our welcome or we haven't done that yet, but, or until we just need more space or whatever we need. And I look back over the last, uh, even the last three weeks. We've had such a great growth spurt in our giving and a growth spurt in our attendance. It's been amazing. We had our highest attendance on Sunday night at Cinema City last week. And I'm sitting there thinking, God, you're, you're, there's momentum here and there's spiritual momentum going on. So now we have three theaters here at Edwards. We have one over at Cinema City. We have the Hillsborough Private School where our whole children's facility is, and we have our church in Abu Dhabi. And I laid out a plan for some, about three more sites for next year where God is just doing some stuff, and we, we lose track of all that's going on when we, we gather in these individuals, where we're here, we're in, in Theater One or Theater Two, or we're in Cinema City, or we're in United Emirates. Luke chapter 10, uh, I realized that uh, when Jesus sent out these 70 disciples, that Jesus had the craziest plan I've ever heard of. Do you know that Jesus has crazy plans? Have you ever noticed that? How many of you would attest to that? There's some crazy plans, all right? Let's just say that Jesus has crazy plans. Now let me show you how crazy it is. Luke chapter 10, verses 3 and 4 and 8 and 9. Here's what he does. He gets these 70 disciples together. He's going to send them out, and here's what he tells them. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. I don't know about you, but that's not what I want to hear. I want to hear Jesus saying, look, it's all going to be fine. People are going to love you, accept you. You're going to, things are going to go good. You're lambs among wolves. Now what do lambs fight with? Hey, I could trade you a little sweater here. And what do you got? You got nothing. Wolves. You're going to feel, you ever seen a wolf feel sorry for a lamb? Oh, poor little lamb. Hate to eat you all at once. I think I'll divide you in two. I mean, that's just the way it works. Okay, so he says, now carry neither money, knapsack, or sandals. Okay, so I want you to go out as lambs among wolves. I don't want you to take any money. I don't want you to take a knapsack because you might, you might be able to, you know, store a bunch of stuff in there. I don't want you to take any money bag, so no money. I want you going out broke. Sandals. I just want you to go without sandals. See, it's a reminder of Exodus 3 when God says to Moses, you're standing on holy ground. He says, I want you dependent on me. The church has to stay dependent on Jesus. I want you to go out that way and greet no one along the road. You're walking along, somebody's, you know, says, hey, how you doing? I don't have time to stop. Sorry, I'm on a mission. Where are you going to go? You're at whatever city you enter. Oh, any city? Yeah, any city will be fine. When you go into that city and they receive you, eat such things that are set before you. There's another bad thing. 
You ever been to somebody's house and they offered you dinner and you didn't want to eat it? You looked at it and said, what is it? That's what he said. I want you to eat it. Be thankful about it. And while you're there, here's what I want you to do. I want you to heal the sick, say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. That's Jesus' plan. Does it make sense to you? Makes no sense to me. I think it's a lousy plan unless I understand that God wanted to put them in a position of dependence so that they could see the power of God and realize what he says here, the kingdom of God has come near you. You see, when we are dependent people, we understand the kingdom of God aligns with us. That's why he told us, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come, remember that, thy will be done on earth as it already is being done in heaven. In other words, as you get in this dependent situation through prayer and through living, what you end up doing is you end up finding that the kingdom of God comes near people. And when the kingdom of God begins to rub up against people, it makes a difference. That's why it says over there in Revelation that Jesus walks among the seven golden candlesticks and every once in a while you can feel the train of his robe as he moves in and among us and you feel that wind of the spirit as the presence of God begins to show up and the kingdom of God begins to realize itself in your life and you become a kingdom person filled with the spirit of God living out your life not a life in fear but a life in faith Joan of Arc was that probably about 16 year old girl that led France. It's a pretty amazing story if you get the real story versus the Hollywood version of the story. But final to, toward the end of those revelations that she was having to lead France to victory, they began to turn the whole thing for a political reason, find ways to capture her and to destroy her and to control her. And listen to what she said when they came to her. She said, if you come from God, I do not fear you. If you come from the devil, I fear you even less. That's the kind of people we need to be. Let me give you some life applications. Miracles are to be the norm, not the exception. They're to be the norm, not the exception. We want to see God do the miraculous in our midst. Secondly, invite the presence of God into your daily life. I just want the presence of God to be here, powerfully moving in us and through us right now. You know, we're going to share together in communion. And as we share in communion, it is a really about His presence, is it not? It's about God showing up and us understanding that this bread and this cup that we take, it's a reminder that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again, and he is returning. He says when you take that bread and you take that cup, take it in a manner that's worthy unto the Lord. In other words, if you have something in your heart that you need to confess to God, confess it and then take. There's nobody perfect in this room that I can see. You know any perfect people? We didn't invite them. They make us uncomfortable. They give us the itch. We need people who just love Jesus. Want to find Jesus. We want to invite his presence into this place right now as we prepare our hearts for this communion. Let's join me in prayer, would you?
Father, as we pray, we invite your presence into this place. As we take this communion, God, we take it in a, in a, in a manner, Father, that, that honors you. We believe this bread and this cup, Father, they are, they are a memorial unto you. There's something that teaches us what it means to be your followers. It causes us to examine our heart and to yield back to you, Father, those things that are not of you. And God, as we, as we join our hearts and our hands together and as believers in Jesus Christ, Father, we do so believing that you are doing a miraculous work in our midst, way beyond what we could ever ask or understand. So we take this cup, we take this bread, God, and we worship you right now. In the name of Jesus, that name which is above every name. That you might be lifted up. That you, God, might be honored and glorified. And we give you praise in Jesus' name.